land north of Israel, then he's going to head south to Israel. So as we read through the first three verses, this is Paul's third missionary journey. He's getting ready to come back to Israel, and that's the goal. And that's what we set the scene with, verse 1. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kaz, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyra. For there the ship was to unload her cargo. Once again, basically, it's setting the scene. Cutting across the Mediterranean Sea, passing these towns and islands, arriving on the mainland there of Israel, and then getting ready to head north, excuse me, head south down to Jerusalem. Verse 4, And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. So Paul basically gets seven days off. So what does he do during those seven days? Verse 4, finding disciples. Now, that phrase, finding disciples, is really not a great translation. Actually, if you have NIV out there, it says that he sought out disciples. That's a really interesting word. This word is only used twice in the entire Bible, both in the New Testament, and it's used once here, and the other context is used in the book of Luke when the shepherds were trying to find Jesus. It means an intense, diligent search. It's not just like Paul went on the mainland and ran into some Christians and said, Oh, neat, I found some disciples. He got off the boat and he diligently searched for them. He looked for them. He wanted to find them, just like the shepherds were trying to find Jesus. What is the point? The point is the importance of fellowship. Now, here's the problem with fellowship. We really don't understand the biblical definition of fellowship. We think of fellowship as like right right now. We're having fellowship, right? I'm meeting with other Christians. I said hi to them. They said, how are you? I said, fine, we had fellowship. Or at the Wednesday night meal, I'm going to sit beside somebody for 15, 20 minutes. That's fellowship, right? I ran into them at Walmart. We talked a little bit. We had fellowship. That's not the biblical definition of the word fellowship. That's how we may define it. The biblical definition of the word fellowship is a closeness, a oneness, an intimacy with another person where you say, you're born again in Christ, I'm born again in Christ, I want to help you grow as a believer, I want you to help me grow as a believer. And so therefore we open up our lives to each other, guys with guys, gals with gals, and say, let's grow together. Now for some of you, you say, amen. That's what I've been looking for. Some of you now are getting really afraid because that sounds completely awkward to you. Opening up to somebody... Telling them what I'm struggling with. You know, I don't want to get together and hold hands and cry and talk about our childhood. I don't want to do that. That's not what I'm talking about. How can I help you grow as a believer? How can you help me grow as a believer? And let's take down all walls and have fellowship with one another. That's a tough thing to do. Some of us aren't a big fan of fellowship. I remember I got a pastor's conference I'm going to in a couple weeks. And we've gone to this pastor's conference for about 20 years now. And I remember the first time... I went, as, as the pastor out here, they ended with communion. And so it was the last session, and so they said, all the Ohio pastors, can you come up here? We're going to have communion. And begrudgingly, I had to go. You know, you had to meet with these guys, meet them face to face. And the Lord used it, made some really nice relationships. But it was awkward for me. I, you know, if I don't really know you, it's hard for me to open up. When I have the pastor mode, I can go into pastor mode. But if it's just James, it's tough. So the next year I went, I knew what they were going to do the last session. So I decided I was going to skip the last session. So they did it the session before the last session. Made us break into small groups, circle up, and pray. So I decided I was going to skip that one. And I've come to the conclusion now, whatever session I try to get out of, they're just going to do it at a different one. God says there's an importance there. 
And you know what? There is an importance there. The problem with fellowship, though, is if you really don't have fellowship, you don't notice it right away. If you quit praying, you would notice that pretty quickly. There's a loss of communication with the Lord. If you'd quit being in your word, after a while, you'd find out you're spiritually dry. If you quit serving, eventually your spiritual muscles would become weak. If you quit coming to church, you would lose the accountability. But if you quit fellowship, you make up for it in other areas. So I'm in the Word, I'm in prayer, I talk to believers here and there. Like when I serve in the back, you know, we talk. That's not fellowship. That's disguised as closeness, but really it's not. I mean, think about this. Dawn asked me recently, my wife, she goes, "Uh, do you have any friends? Now, what, what a setup question, right? I said, I have lots of friends. Look through the directory. There's hundreds of people. They're all my friends. She goes, are they really your friends? I said, they're my friends. We talk. We, if, I, if you'd go to them and say, are, are you my friend? They would say, yes, I'm James's friend. I would say, I'm their friend. And then Dawn goes, well, how do you define the word friend? And that's a really good question. Because we have this tendency, don't we? In this world of Facebook, et cetera, we have hundreds of friends. No, oh, my goodness. Some of your friends are enemies. And you still have them as friends. I don't get that. There was a survey just done recently. I was hearing a pastor talk about this. They surveyed a group of men, and they did the survey twice. Once they did the survey publicly, you sign your name, and they did the exact same survey then anonymously. The first time they did the survey publicly, one of the questions they asked the guys was, you know, how are you in your friendships and your relationships? And you had to choose, you know, I'm either lonely, you know, or I'm doing great, got lots of good godly friends, etc. The public surveys, everybody picked lots of good godly friends, strong fellowship, etc. Same exact survey done anonymously, 90% of the men said they're lonely. Now, isn't that the truth? Now, wives, right now you're thinking, that's my husband. He's got a friend, Bill, and all they talk about are crescent wrenches, and they trade socket sets. And he thinks Bill and him are bestest buddies. Generally, as men, we fail in this area. Now, sometimes women do too. And we have all these disguises of why. Why don't I fellowship? I don't like to open up. I find it awkward. I don't have time. And really what it comes down to is just excuse, 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 excuse. Jesus talked about fellowship so much. In fact, the purpose of the book of 1 John is that you may have fellowship with Christ and then have fellowship with other believers. That's the purpose of the book. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, when you talk about the early church, one of the things they had was fellowship. Not just getting together, but a true intimacy with each other in Christ. That's part of the reasons why we're starting up these small groups. You remember the passage we used as our baseline for that was Acts 20, verse 20, where Paul said that he went taught them publicly, but also house to house. So what we're doing is we're going to be starting this up in a couple weeks. If you didn't notice, the sign-up sheets are back there on the back table. I forget, I think we had eight people that were willing to host in nice different geographical locations. We've got Henry County, we've got Hancock County, we've got Wood County, all over. And most of them are teaching, what we're doing is teaching through the book of Ephesians. And we're not teaching like we do on Sunday morning. This is not show up and listen to someone talk for 40 minutes. It's not like that at all. It's what we like to call prime the pump Bible studies. There's going to be one certain passage that we like. And then we're going to present that passage and start the study. And hopefully then people will be included and share I know, that means you may have to talk. But that idea of coming together as one. There's different locations back there. There is one group that's meeting on marriage. And if you're interested in that, they're doing something called the Couples Communications Class. That's Ron and Kathy Tiarina, the couple that hosts our heart-to-hearts out here. So if you're looking at that one. Some groups can have child care. Some weren't able to facilitate that. It's all back there on the sheets. I encourage you, prayerfully go consider getting involved with that. Those are the lists of the people hosting 
We're still figuring out who's teaching what group, etc. So just because they're hosting doesn't necessarily mean that they're teaching that group. But I prayerfully encourage you to get involved with that because that's part of it. We're going to do it for six weeks this fall. See what works. See what doesn't. Come back in the spring and reevaluate it. So start here at the beginning of October. Be done before Thanksgiving. Fellowship. It's important. Fellowship is a oneness with other believers in Christ saying, I want you to grow with me. I want to help you grow. And this is what you see. Paul in verse 4 diligently seeking out believers because he wanted that fellowship. He wanted to be with them. Strength in numbers. Problem is a lot of us do it on our own. And guess what? We're doing okay, right? I always find it fascinating when I go up to somebody and say, how are you doing spiritually? Usually get fine or okay. And I always want to ask them, what is your definition of fine? Because God's definition of doing fine spiritually probably does not line up with your definition of fine. There's a great verse in the book of Isaiah. Woe to him who warms himself by the fire alone and is guided by the light of his own fire. See, if you would make a fire and warm yourself by the fire alone, you've got a little bit of warmth, you've got a little bit of light, and you're doing okay. But what God is saying through the prophet Isaiah is if you kind of do this solo Christian thing, you're really missing out on what is going on. God has designed us to be a body of Christ. Toes, fingers, etc. A oneness there. And woe to us that try to go out on our own and do it on our own. I'm fine. I don't need this. You're missing out. Can't force it. That's one thing I've learned out here being a pastor for 15 years. You can't force fellowship. You have to earnestly desire it and hopefully see the blessing of it. Hope that you do. Now, another point about this which I find fascinating is in verse 5. That they all accompanied us, verse 5, with wives and children till we were out of the city and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. What a neat picture that is. They get ready to leave. And as they're getting ready to leave, all the believers come out, their wives come out, their kids come out, and they have this great corporate session of prayer right there on the shore before Paul takes off. That's a pretty neat thing. It's amazing how with prayer it becomes difficult, doesn't it? Publicly. Some, you know, some people even struggle with praying privately. But publicly praying? You know, that's one thing with the boys. You know, growing up, we've always tried to be a family of public prayer. If we go out to eat, we pray. If we're on public, we pray. But it's amazing how, as a kid, they have no concerns whatsoever about pr- praying publicly. They don't. But as adults, we start analyzing the scenario, don't we? Seeing if this is acceptable or not. If this is a good time to pray. I mean, can you imagine taking this right here when it says they all knelt down together and prayed on the shore? We do this out here. If someone's leaving on a mission trip, we'll call them up in front of the church. We'll pray for them. But can you imagine like going to the airport and right there you are where you say goodbye. And it's like, hey, everybody, let's kneel down and pray. We probably wouldn't do that. We'd probably go find some quiet little corner, right? My boys have been trained. I don't know if it was Dawn. It must have been her. That anytime they hear a siren, they pray. You know, that's kind of the rule. Every time they hear a siren, they pray. So if we're in a vehicle, we hear a siren or see police, we pray. Well, one time we were out in public and we were talking to people outside and somebody heard a siren and Kenan, my third, came over and grabbed my pant leg. He said, Dad, I hear a siren. I said, okay, buddy, why don't you go pray? He goes, no, let's pray. I said, we will, we will. He goes, no, let's pray right now. Now, I'm, I'm the adult for talking to people. No, this isn't the time or place for prayer, right? Childlike faith. Get down on one knee and let's just pray right here, buddy. That's what we did. But as an adult, I'm analyzing. It's awkward. Is this the right time? As a kid, siren, somebody's hurt, we need to pray. Boy, let's get back to that childlike faith. 
You see this right here. Let's just get on the shore. Let's just pray for these people. And that's something that we do try to do anytime I can do a hospital visit. And as long as it's not a, a rough hospital visit or a nursing home visit, I try to take one of my boys with me. Let's go. Let's get together and let's pray for these people as a family and do this type of stuff. So you see this family unit. Wives, children, husbands, fathers, all praying together. What a beautiful picture that is. I want to build on that if you can. Can you go with me to the book of Joshua, please? Joshua 24. We've got two verses about this idea of this family praying together. Joshua 24. Joshua 24, very famous verse here in verse 15 that many of us probably know. We probably have it hanging on our wall at home in our house. Joshua 24, verse 15. Joshua is speaking to the nation of Israel as we get near the end, verse 15. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What a simple phrase. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That is a conscious decision that you have to make, is that whether you and your house will serve the Lord. And it doesn't matter if you have kids in your house. It doesn't matter if you're married. It doesn't matter if you're single. It matters no idea what spot you're in. You make a conscious choice that my house will serve the Lord. Now, what does that mean? It's not just in name only. It means in practicality. When I say my house will serve the Lord, I understand what I'm saying. This house is not my house now. Whatever possessions I have in this house are the Lord's, and I want to serve the Lord. If somebody needs something, take it. When I say my house will serve the Lord, this house is not my house. If somebody needs something to pop over, what have you, I need to be open and have that hospitality because my house will serve the Lord. It means that my house will serve the Lord, not just publicly, but also privately, that we will serve the Lord. And once again, it doesn't matter if you're married, single, or what have you. It's a conscious choice you make to say that this location where I spend the majority of my day is going to be a spot where I say, I will make a stand and serve the Lord in this capacity. And then going one step further, go to the book of Deuteronomy, just to the left, one chapter. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. What does it look like when a house serves the Lord? Deuteronomy chapter 6. One book to the left of Joshua. Pick it up here in verse 5. You shall love the Lord, God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Your house, by serving the Lord, has a focus on the things of God. You may have young kids at home. I encourage you. Verse 7, teach them to the children. Talk of them all the time. We just try to do simple things. If we're walking back to the creek, we see a bird. I say, quick, boys, what day was the bird created on? See a raccoon. Guys, what days was the raccoon created on? When we sit down for supper, we usually get the Bible and we usually read through something. It's not forced. Because I know when it's forced. Sometimes we just have conversations. What did you learn in church today? Where did it go? Sometimes the conversations start out very godly. And next thing you know, the whole thing is this wonderful time of fellowship and testimony. There's other times where it starts out and next thing you know, we're talking about Nerf guns. You know what? Sometimes it works. Don't force it. But there's such an openness. When I tell you, when you lie down, one of the last things we try to do with the boys is let's pray and read. And when you rise up with the older boys, as soon as they get up, we got a daily devotion and we try to do it at 745. Let's all meet in the living room and read through the Bible together. Just trying to make this a practicality of what we do. 
Because we truly want to do it. I mean, it's one thing to be Christian in name only. And I'm telling you right now, there's a lot of Christians in name only in this world. What are we doing it? Let's see a real life example of this. Back to Acts 21. We're reintroduced to Philip, verse 7. When we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. So now we're reintroduced to Philip. We haven't seen Philip since Acts chapter 8. I love Philip. Philip is one of my favorite guys in the Bible, and I could spend so much time in in verses 8 and 9 just talking about Philip. So much to say here. First thing we need to say about Philip is this idea of they stayed at Philip's house. That doesn't seem that big a deal, right? I mean, obviously, Philip was a nice guy. He opens up his house. Follow my logic on this. Philip had Paul stay with him. That's huge. Philip is one of the original seven. If you remember in Acts chapter 6, we had the 12 disciples. And then what happened is the church began to grow. They couldn't take care of everything. So in Acts chapter 6, they raised up seven deacons, if you will. And these were the first graduating class of the church, if you will. Philip was one of them. One of the guys that was with Philip was who? Stephen. Now, we know what happened to Stephen. Stephen was the first martyr of the church. Stephen was martyred by the Sanhedrin, and one of the guys at Stephen's martyrdom was who? Paul. Paul, who actually took part in it by holding the clothes of everybody, saying, hey, you want to go Stephen? Go stone Stephen. You go up stone. I'll hold your coat for him. He was the designated driver of the stoning, if you will. So, guess what? 20 years later, Paul is staying at Philip's house. Put this all together. Philip and Stephen, who came into the church together, served together. Stephen, who was martyred by a group with Paul. 20 years later, Paul is now staying at Philip's house in hospitality. There's two points on that. First off, number one, look how Christ changed Paul. Point number two, Philip didn't hold any grudges. Now think about that. One of your dear brothers in the Lord is martyred by somebody? Killed? Killed very viciously, stoned to death. And now 20 years later, the guy that helped take part in that is now saved? And he wants to come stay at your house? What would we do? Well, I'm glad he's forgiven. I'm glad he knows Jesus, but I don't ever need to see that guy again in my life. No, Philip opens up his house. No bitterness, no grudges, no nothing. Philip's an amazing guy. Next thing we see about Philip, look at him. He's an evangelist. He opens his house. And the four virgin daughters who prophesied. If you're taking notes, three points on Philip. First one, he is spiritually strong, an evangelist. Second point, he's practically strong, hospitality, practically opening up his house. Third one, he's personally strong because he raised the four virgin daughters. They saw the real deal. Spiritually, practically, and personally. If you have all three of those, you can be quite the man or woman of God. You know what happens, though? A lot of times we're pretty content with one out of three. And if you can get two out of three, that's really good. I mean, spiritually strong. As long as when I'm in public, I present this aura of being right with God. No one will ever question me. I mean, as long as I serve here and there, I quote some Bible verses, God bless you, how can I pray for you? I'm, I'm publicly spiritually strong. Well, what about personally and privately? Question to ask yourself. How does your public life compare to your private life? I mean, how do you present yourself publicly? Is there something in the skeleton closet privately? Philip didn't have that. 
Now, I've seen other ways, too. I've seen people that are practically strong. They would open up their house to anybody. But spiritually, they're not there. Personally, they're not there. I've seen people that are personally strong. they got this great home life, but the problem is, publicly, practically, they're not doing anything. They're what I like to call the fort mentality Christians. Okay, kids, everybody just hide in the fort until Jesus returns. We'll have to send them out once a month for food and water. But other than that, we're just staying in the fort. That's good. You're raising good, godly people, but we're also supposed to be out there being lights and witnesses. Think of those three. Spiritually, practically, personally. Spiritually strong, he's an evangelist. He's got to walk with the Lord. Practically strong, he's opening up his house, hospitality. Personally strong, raised four daughters that are pure in the Lord and also spiritually strong in the Lord. Hence the term, they were prophetesses there. So you see this. That's an amazing guy. This guy's great. Acts chapter 6, we see Philip as the servant. You want me to wait tables? Sure, I'll wait tables. Acts chapter 8, we see Philip as the evangelist, getting out there and spreading the gospel. Then in Acts chapter 20, we see the practical Philip of saying, I'm willing to open up my house. What does the church need? The church needs more Philips. Spiritually, practically, personally, all three together. What a combination that is. And I'll just ask this question again. We see the real deal with Philip. How does your public life compare to your private walk with the Lord? How does it compare? Philip had the real deal. Verse 10, And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from the place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm not ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we cease saying, The will of the Lord be done. Agabus. Agabus is mentioned twice in the Bible. Agabus is mentioned in Acts 11, that he prophesies about a famine coming. And Agabus is now mentioned here in Acts 21. He's the guy that prophesies that Paul is going to uh, be bound in Jerusalem. Now, we talk about this a lot sometimes this idea that people were born in the wrong generation. You ever run into those guys that want to grow a beard down to their waist and kill animals and live in the mountains and eat, you know? Should have been born 150 years ago type of guy, right? Agabus, he's Old Testament prophet guy. I mean, this is Old Testament prophet stuff. Ezekiel, wasn't he the one that laid on his side for days to make a point? Jeremiah, remember what God told Jeremiah? He told Jeremiah, take off your undergarments, go hide them behind a stone. Let it get real gross. Then come put the undergarments on now over your clothes and walk through Jerusalem saying, Jerusalem, this is what you're like. That takes a lot. Agabus, in my mind, is what I would call spiritually annoying. What he says is right, but sometimes you don't want to hear it. I mean, when Agabus shows up, basically, oh boy, what's Agabus going to say now? First time famine, okay, now Paul's going to be bound. And he has to do it dramatically, verse 11. Takes the belt, binds his own hands and feet. I mean, Agabus, couldn't you just told us? A little bit of drama there. You know what Agabus' name means? It means locust. Most of the time we don't think of, oh, cute, there's a locust. You know, we don't think about that. Most of the time from a biblical perspective, when locusts are coming, it's usually God's say a warning. My point is this. Agabus may be a little bit spiritually annoying, but he is completely necessary and essential to the body of Christ. You need Agabuses that are willing to take a stand and say wrong is wrong. Agabus, I don't think, was the type of guy 
that a lot of people got excited about. Maybe they did. But he was the one that was willing to step up and say, I got some rough news to share and I'm willing to do it. What happens as a church is we have this tendency to not want to hurt people's feelings and we have this tendency to not want to be honest. And what happens then is we hurt people by not doing things. There's this great passage in the book of Proverbs that says, Open rebuke is better than concealed love. This idea that I would rather be rebuked by you because I said truth than to conceal the truth and just say, I love you enough and I don't want to hurt your feelings, so I'm not going to say anything. How is that love? Agabus was willing to do this. And you know what? Don't you think Agabus struggled with this? When the Lord said, Agabus, go to Paul, bind your hands and feet. Don't you think Agabus could have said, come on, God, can't I just go tell him? When I do that out here, you find out something's like, Lord, why do I have to be the bad guy? I'm so sick and tired of being the bad guy. It'd be easier to just not say anything. It's just easier to let it go. But we can't. Agabus could have just said, hey, Paul, can can I talk to you privately? The Lord said, be careful when you go to Jerusalem. Nope, take the belt, tie your hands and feet, lay down in front of everybody. It's not fun being an Agabus. It's not. But they are essential to the body of Christ to take a stand on issues. So what happens here is this. All these people now are telling Paul, don't go. Jump back to verse 4. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Verse 12. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from the place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. So is Paul wrong to go to Jerusalem? No. What happened was God is just forewarning Paul. Verse 11, look at Agabus' prophecy. Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. Agabus is not saying don't do it. He's just saying, guess what's going to happen, Paul? This is what we have a tendency to do as Christians. We take something and then form our own opinion with it. Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound. So obviously, don't go. No, this is a forewarning. This is that severe thunderstorm warning that the National Weather Service is giving you a couple hours' notice. Get prepared. Same thing here spiritually. The Lord is saying, Paul, get prepared. When you go to Jerusalem, it's going to be rough. Be prepared. What's the point? There are things right now that the Lord is kind of revealing to you, be it spiritually, be it emotionally, or be it physically. God is giving you warning. He says, it's coming. Maybe you've got a physical issue coming up and you know it's going to be rough. He's giving you warning. Now is your time of prayer, fasting, and preparation. Maybe you know there's a spiritual struggle coming up. God is saying, here's your warning. Now is your time of prayer, fasting, and preparation. Maybe emotionally, you know it's going to be a difficult season coming up. There's things happening. You're stressed. You're anxious. God says, now is your time of prayer, fasting, and preparation. This is what he's doing to Paul. Giving him a forewarning to get ready for what's coming. We as believers, the Lord does the exact same thing. He gives us forewarning so we can be in the Word, be in prayer, be in fasting. So when these difficult times happen, we're ready for it. One of the best examples of this is remember when the disciples came to Jesus and said, we can't cast this demon out. And so Jesus said, yeah, that demon only comes out by prayer and fasting. Now, how are the disciples supposed to know that? Do you ever think about that? So the guy comes with the demon and says, hey, can you cast the demon out of my my brother here? Yeah, sure. Oh, wait, that's the demon that only comes out by prayer and fasting. So what we'll do is we'll skip supper tonight, and then can you meet us maybe tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock? Yeah, that sounds good. I'll bring the demon-possessed guy back then. It doesn't work that way. Jesus' point was that you should always be prepared in prayer and fasting because you never know when you're going to run into something. Have you ever had a situation where you ran into it and you're like, boy, I wish I would have prayed more for this. Boy, I wish I would have been in the Word more for this. 
And what happens is we get this cramming mentality. Okay, Jesus, it's a really big day at work today. Like, it's going to start in a half hour, so I really need you. On the way to work, I am just going to listen to praise music and pray. Praise music and pray. Amen. But what would happen if that would be your mindset every day? What would happen if your mindset would be, you know what, today looks like a good day. I'm feeling good. Um, There's no stress. There's really not a bad day at work. So, Lord, I want to use this day as a day of preparation because tomorrow may not be that way. That's what he's telling Paul. Get prepared, Paul. It's going to be tough. And you know what happens here? Starting in verse uh, 16 of Acts 21, it gets tough for Paul. But the Lord has shown him and prepared in verse 15. And after these days, we packed up and went to Jerusalem. Everything changes when he gets to Jerusalem. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. Marvin, come forward here for the final song. So let's just remind ourselves of this. What you see here is Paul 